91.3 FM WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark in the great state of Delaware. I'm Bill Humphrey, and thanks for listening. The following episode was recorded on December 5th, 2016, and produced by me at my studio in Newton, Massachusetts. This week, Jonathan joins me to discuss Flint funding and Republican strategies for attaching big policy changes to must-pass bills. Then, in the online-only portion, we discuss moderate Republican state legislature defeats, gerrymandering, and more. All that is coming up right now on Arsenal for Democracy. Arsenal for Democracy is available for download on Wednesdays at arsenalfordemocracy.com and from iTunes. We air the show in Delaware on 91.3 FM and stream it from wvud.org on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. Follow us on Twitter at AFD Radio or like us on Facebook. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. This week's episode is going to be a full episode with bonus content. If you're listening online from arsenalfordemocracy.com, iTunes, or other sources for the podcast version, but it is going to be partially preempted for a WVUD radio sports broadcast coming up later at 6.45 in the hour. Joining me in studio again this week is Jonathan Cohn. Welcome back to the program, Jonathan. Thanks for having me, Bill. And I don't think we've been promoting it heavily enough, but people can follow you on Twitter at Jonathan Cohn. Yes, so, it's my name. Yes. It's easy to remember. Yeah, but uh, Jonathan's also actually uh, finally started writing on the arsenalfordemocracy.com website. Um, I'm definitely, folks, I'm going to try to get like back into gear with that uh, in the new year. It's uh, been, uh, uh, there's been a lot going on, uh, especially for me, um, you know, and, and uh, I'm still recuperating from the election. <laughs> but Jonathan has put out some great articles there in the Thank past you. week. And um, at the close of the last episode, which I think was two weeks ago, Jonathan made the case that uh, in passing that uh, he hoped that personal animosities would (laughs) foil a lot of the uh, agenda, uh, you know, friction between Trump, between the Senate and the House, you know, and and the three of those actors and then all the various other actors. Um, And I expressed some skepticism. Uh, I think there will probably be some more stuff coming out from various publications from me uh, in the near future as to why I think actually there's going to be a lot of uh, close cooperation based on personalities. Um, A lot of uh, creepy stuff involving Republicans. Yeah, Republicans (laughs) who are like each other's roommates or their staff members were each other's roommates and things like that. Like there's how charming. Yeah, there's there's a a good deal of evidence uh, to suggest that that's not going to be. uh, a big uh, obstacle for policy. But I think that whichever way that pans out, we need to go into this with the assumption that that's not going to be a problem and that we need to be yeah. preparing for the worst um, and like figuring out how to stop some of those uh, agenda items um, and the tactics that will be involved there. Um, and so there were two articles that you had written mm-hmm. um, 
covering sort of legislative tactics and vote counts and things like that. Um, I don't know which one you want to talk about first. Um, there was the issue of uh, attaching riders to mm -hmm. things. And then how, how would you describe the other one? You were talking about Flint funding with yeah, that. The, but like what... the, the broader issue there is just looking at how easily Democrats concede on their priorities. You know, whether we're talking about attaching, uh, you know, dangerous legislation to must pass uh, larger bills, defense authorizations, spending bills, yeah. things like that, um, or, uh, you know, whether it's just r Democrats rolling over on basic funding issues um, in a way that Republicans maybe don't do. Um, these are things that we need to be looking closely at. So why don't we start with Flint, actually, because that sort of, um, I think, sets the groundwork for a lot of this. Um, and that's the one that you wrote first as well. Mm -hmm. The issue there is that when you have a disaster of some kind, man-made or otherwise, mm -hmm. you know, usually it gets to a point where you need federal relief. Um, and the federal government is supposed to provide some money, but they, if they don't, they, if they don't have it lying around, they're going to have to get some funding from Congress. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of cases where like, you know, and this happened in 2012, four years ago with the hurricane mm -hmm. Sandy stuff where the Republicans kept trying to block the funding for that. But then yeah. like a year later, if there were floods or hurricanes in their like deep South, you know, yeah. red States, they would just be like, Oh, give me, give me money. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So, you know, and, but, and it, we bring that up not as a element of like <laughs> hypocrisy, it, but just like understanding that they're playing a very sketchy game. Um, yeah. And we have to be playing hardball in the correct direction, right? Yeah. This is not a case for Democrats to also <laughs> block funding, funding exactly. right? Because um, man, there's been a there's been a mean streak reaction to this election where yeah. you get Democrats essentially being like, "Well, you know, your state voted for Trump, so screw you," and we hope that you all die and don't get any programs and whatever. And that's which not, is a weird yeah. generalization of the state because, like. Granted, it would still be probably for everybody in the state had voted for, like, to abandon if everybody had voted for Trump, but that's not normally the case. And all those deep south states and have large, particularly large African-American Democratic voting populations, but, like, there still are Democratic voters in the state that you would be also abandoning. So it'd be like, sorry, black, like, sorry, black people in Mississippi, we're angry that the white people who've been oppressing you for years voted for another candidate. So we're going to join them. Yeah. Um, and even even in states where that's not the the dynamic at play, like I saw people make like there was some headline that was uh, Kentuckians. Um, some Kentuckians are worried about losing their Obamacare. Yeah. And it was like and this is something we've actually on Arsenal for Democracy quite a few years ago at this point now had some uh, extensive in-depth discussions. Sasha came on, I think, and did some. Uh, presentations on it about how Kentucky had set up its own state mm -hmm. exchange. It was like very carefully crafted to, um, you know, work in like dial up in rural areas and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And they had a phone number, you know, so you didn't have to use online systems at all. Um, and this like went off basically without a hitch while the healthcare.gov national thing was having a huge meltdown. Um, but like also just remember that if someone is complaining about their possibility of losing their Obamacare stuff in Kentucky, it's entirely possible that they are a Democrat who voted for Clinton, who lives in a city in Kentucky and like yeah. very much supports Obamacare. Like the, you can't just assume based off a headline right. that like, Oh, they, these are Trump supporters or whatever. There um, were also a number of them who just didn't vote, particularly if you're going to look into it, look in County, like poor rural counties, people don't vote. 
Like it's like they're gonna there aren't you're you're only really going to have like there are gonna be a handful of states where you do like I think I believe Massachusetts was one of the maybe there were there, I forget that how few it was single digits the number of states where the winning candidate also beat non-voters right. treated as a candidate right um because it tends to be like a handful of states that do have high turnout large but and if you live even look on like at the city county etc level you're going to have to find probably more higher income areas where you do have that very that very strong turnout so like in a poor rural area most of those people didn't vote yeah. So like they, they certainly didn't vote for Clinton, but they also just didn't vote. But speaking of areas in states that ended up voting for Trump that have been struggling, let's get back to Flint. Yes. So Flint, Democratic area in general, yeah. um, probably, I think, had a turnout drop, which is kind of understandable. Yeah. Because as I have said uh, many times since this election, um, if you base your entire campaign on the line that voting for the other candidate will uh, bring the end of the world... That only works in areas where the world hasn't ended. ended. Yeah. Yeah. And for people in Flint who are still without water, the world already ended. And, you know, their kids are being affected for the rest of their lives with lead poisoning and things like that. Um, You know, it's just bleak as heck there. And you had folks like, you know, Michael Moore, who is a very controversial figure. And he was a controversial figure even this year. And there are many things that I don't agree with him on. Mm -hmm. But he was like right before the general election, he was out there basically by himself hosting desperate rallies in favor of Hillary Clinton, which was totally like people were baffled by that because it seemed utterly out of character. And he's been, you know, a huge harsh critic uh, of, of Hillary Clinton. But like, you know, he he apparently saw the writing on the wall, which was the, the Flint area in general was, you know, the turnout was going to just crater there, which that seems to be the narrative that that we're getting out of out of Michigan based on the facts anyway, yeah. as opposed to some of the other narratives, um, which is just that that in Michigan in general, uh, Democratic Party non yeah, non turnout or even. Uh, I don't know if the numbers held up, but uh, certainly at one point, the number of of people who went and voted but left the presidential line blank, um, you know, that exceeded the margin that Trump won the state by. Yeah, yeah, by uh, I think three, three times or something. Yeah, so higher than that. Uh, Former Governor Jennifer Granholm of of Michigan was commenting on that on Twitter just the other day. I remember seeing her noting that I forget the exact number, but it was it was several times higher like than like some times the actual like margin so that there are a number of dem like and because michigan still has michigan has party line voting so you can even i think so that you do have the ability to tell like that these are people who voted like every single thing except for <laughs> in any case part of the issue here though is that like it's not i mean there's a long kind of complicated and malicious history of how republican policy decisions in michigan led to this cataclysmic event with the water supply in Flint. The next chapter of that story is how the Democrats, since learning about it, failed to do anything. And you can say, well, they weren't in control of Congress at the federal level and that sort of thing. Um, But you were looking into this and like, it seems like they just didn't really even put up a struggle. Yeah, because they could have fought. So like, so in the piece I wrote about how back, back in February was when you started early February was when you had the Senate start paying attention. So Debbie Stabenow and uh, Gary Peters are the two senators from Michigan, both Democrats. And Stabenow had... I think both I think both of them had wanted to hold up the energy bill that that the Senate had at the time, saying that if we don't get kind of an appropriation for Flint for that the necessary emergency preparedness fund, 
we're going we're going to keep filibustering this bill to block it block it from going forward and in a few votes most not all but most democrats did abide by that strategy of voting against cloture uh for for the energy energy modernization act or whatever the formal name of it was um so that they in order to get funding but then time passed and then when it kind of the senate did other things when it came to april and they brought that bill again the michigan delegation decided to concede and say it was fine to kind of move move that bill forward without without addressing the demand they had before and the kind of demand came up again in september when there were when congress had to pass a continuing resolution um at the end of september that was going to be the deadline for if, if without a continuing resolution to fund the government the government would be left unfunded and have a government shutdown and that's a time where people like to use it as leverage to do whatever they want and at that time the louisiana's delegation was very interested in emergency preparedness like in disaster relief um like disaster relief funding because of the floods that hit Louisiana. Are they all Republicans now, or is there a Democrat for New Orleans? Yeah, Cedric okay. Richmond. All right. So there's yeah, there's one Democrat in the Louisiana delegation, um, and so the Demo- and, and that, I don't think that the floods really hit that part. I, I think that there were mainly other parts of the it state, was like Baton Rouge, which is yeah. very Republican. Yeah. So the, the when crafting the kind of the continuing resolution and the various appropriations and various riders, et cetera, that get thrown into it, Republicans were more than happy to appropriate disaster relief funds for Louisiana to help it with flood relief. And Democrats had originally said that they wanted, well, if you're going to do this, I would like we want money for Flint because like that's it's fair. Been a long time. Yeah, Flint needs this money for kind of for like it's. You know, it's disaster relief. People don't have clean water. And ultimately, however, and what should probably be no surprise, Democrats decided to give up that demand with a kind of a promise that Republicans in the House would give an amendment to the Water Resources Development Bill to vote for Flint appropriations. So it wouldn't go in the... the so with the continuing resolution at the end of September... If money had been appropriated for Flint, that money would go into effect immediately. And instead, they just said, well, how about House Republicans agree to vote for money for Flint in the Water Resources Development Bill, which I think the Senate might have, I believe the Senate might have ultimately done that as well, so that we can conference it when we do that later on, and that money will be there. Well, uh, the problem is that they haven't actually finished that bill yet they might be finishing it later this week but whereas louisiana would have gotten like apparently got its money at the end of september however long it takes to actually get there after it's approved flynn's money hasn't been approved yet and there's no way to be a hundred percent sure it will even end up in the final bill because democrats just assumed republicans would behave with (laughs) on goodwill now i can only assume that the democrats thought it now turns out catastrophically that it was far worse to potentially go into a government shutdown at the height of the general election, that 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 would hurt Hillary Clinton. And I can see why they may have thought that, but as it turns out, punting on Flint funding may, you know, may have been one of a number of factors that 
caused Michigan to vote f- for Trump, um, you know, or at least to I not, should, yeah, to Clinton, not to uh, not vote uh, for Clinton, Clinton is a better way of yeah, phrasing it. Yeah, because it's not like Trump really improved yeah, he, on Romney at all. Yeah, just he didn't. He didn't win. Turnout. He didn't like sweep the state or anything. And yeah, f- just, was, like yeah, yeah, and you can see a, a sharp decline in the county that Flint's in. And that's one thing that, like, Obama could have easily, if Obama had wanted to, he could have said, I will veto any bill that doesn't include this. And if Democrats wanted to work on a strategy of that, they could have. And as now, I don't know how polling on this would have worked, but I would think to a person in the general public that it shouldn't be difficult to message Republicans are willing to shut down the government rather than provide people in a, in a city that has toxic water the basic resources to be able to drink what comes out of their faucets. And you would be, that's very easy to message in a broader strategy of Republicans do not care about people and Republicans do not care about resp- like responsible governance, about the health and well-being of the people, etc. And you just beat that talking point until they finally agree to put your like however many, however much money that total amount was, it was smaller than the original demand, but until they toss in the money into the bill. But they just decided to easily punt so I mean, this it, whole strategy from the Clinton side was, as we've seen now from the emails that got leaked, yeah. was ordering all Democrats to stand down on basically accusing yeah. all Republicans of, I mean, not to get off on a tangent, <laughs> but like that, that is kind of, it, it's very alarming because you had these, these must win Senate races in places like North Carolina, I think. Or I can't remember if there was. I think there was one there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Deborah Ross and, and Richard yeah, Burr. and you had you know Florida and Wisconsin and uh, New Hampshire and you know and in New Hampshire they very effectively like they they tied Ayotte to tr- to Trump because she kept untangling herself back <laughs> and forth and you know and I think they did that in Nevada as well like the guy there yeah. like tried to unendorse Trump and then yeah. reendorse him and it was you know it was a similar back and forth back and forth whereas you had folks like Ron Johnson who were just like well I'm okay with Trump and I'm standing with him and I think that happened too in the North Carolina race and yeah. certainly Marco Rubio once he finally came around on Trump yeah. was like lockstep no problem with with Trump for the general election um you know the this like you're 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 hanging out to dry your your Senate candidates by saying that he's completely dissimilar from other Republicans because you're actively in races against other Republicans who yeah. are very closely tied to him and seem to be totally fine with that. And which reminds me of again, it's going off topic, so be it. But um, a really interesting piece uh, by a friend of mine, uh, Kathleen Friedel, had mentioned one of her uh, articles last week kind of she was doing kind of a mini like autopsy report in the article um if you look up her name on medium you can find the piece uh on the party and one thing that she just looked back to some of her own writings on the convention and how the democratic convention back over the summer was very clinton-centric it was telling the story with both with the speakers with the video etc of why clinton why hillary clinton is a great champion for, for American families and American children, et cetera, et cetera. But it wasn't so much focused on what does the Democratic Party stand for and how does the Democratic Party stand against the Republican Party. Whereas at the Republican Party, there was a clear takeaway message. It was a horrible takeaway message. But there was a clear thing about how, like, these are all the horrible things in the country and you should fear all of them and we're the only ones who can save you. Um, Whereas the Democratic one, it was like, isn't Hillary Clinton such a wonderful person? You should vote for her. She's competent. These are all these people singing her praises. 
rather than framing it as Democrats have the Democratic Party has an agenda and, and Republicans have been trying to obstruct that agenda at all levels and you need to elect us so that we can do these things to help the environment, to help help working people, et cetera, et cetera, where you really just drive home a specific vision and a specific agenda that includes the person. You can even put the person as like an embodiment of that, but not reduce it to the person. And getting back to Flint, though, um, the the issue of environmental justice and like just water, like, I mean, like you said, if you message it with any level of competence at all, it's so basic of like people need water. They have poison coming out of their taps. Yeah. And this is not limited to Flint. Like we're obviously yeah. being very tactical in this conversation in terms of talking about like the impact that may have had on Michigan and then in turn, like the presidential race yeah. um, because it was kind of a close race. But there are so many other areas, especially in the South, and maybe you aren't going to win those places, you know, uh, in, 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 you know, you weren't going to win them for the yeah. presidential election, but it's still the right thing to do. And people poisoning care people about it. Like, yeah, poisoning people <laughs> is bad. And, and, and Pennsylvania is another great example. I mean, I don't need to tell you that cause you're from Pennsylvania, but you have these places yeah. where, and this is true in Colorado, which was a battleground state, um, you know, you have places where the fracking going yeah. into the water is is causing a similar level of toxicity. Yeah. You know, it's a different type of toxin, but it's it's yeah. still like you can't drink with it. You can't bathe with it. You can't use it to cook. Uh, you can't wash your clothes in it. And like there's so many areas that need relief desperately mm -hmm. from poisoned water and they're not getting it. Um, you know, and of course we had the situation also going on with different kind of water crisis in North Dakota yeah. and they just didn't seem interested in like having any sort of a unifying theme around that concept. Like I will fully, like, I wasn't going to argue with anybody if they said like Democrats are clearly better on like most environmental issues, you know, than Republicans, but then they don't do stuff when yeah. it's a situation like this. Yeah, and, the, you know, the, obviously there's a lot of Democrats who are pro-fracking, and I don't like that. And I've been very publicly against that and helped stop some of that, um, particularly in Delaware. But, uh, you know, or I should say the Delaware River, River which Valley. affects the yeah. – it affects, affects Delaware's drinking yeah. water and everything. Yeah, Philadelphia. Um, yeah. You know, and – but – but on on balance, there's a very clear divide on basic environmental issues. I'll call them, um, you know, as opposed to something much much larger like climate change. That's a kind of a different story, um, in my opinion. The Democrats don't go nearly far enough on that to distinguish themselves substantially because they go they go with square one, which is climate change is man made and it's happening, and, and then they all... then they just stop there and they're like, well, give yourselves a pat on the back, and it's, you gotta understand you get a gold the science star yeah. for believing. Climate change is real. It's like snaps for you. Yeah, the, and the it's like science. That's where the debate's pretty much. The debate seems to have actually gone backwards over the past yeah, 10 years. Yeah, the science is such that the 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 situation is very desperate and needs very strong action. And obviously, we're not going to get that under Trump. Like I again will accept that premise. But the Democrats also were not offering something. And again, that's a little off topic. But there were a lot of areas where they could have been offering things. Um, you know to really like help people. And it would have been obvious to the American people with any level of messaging yeah. credibility at all, but let's not get too far afield. I want to also talk about that other article that you brought up. So we've been talking about funding attachments yeah. to things. There's also this tradition of attaching basically huge sweeping policy changes yeah. to 
must pass legislation that does not come in the form of spending. These are legal or regulatory changes. Um, and like, let's be clear, Democrats have definitely done this in the past oh, as yeah, well. Um, the example that you bring yeah, up was the favorite, uh, defense favorite. authorization with yeah. the hate crimes attached. Yeah. So like my, in terms of like, as I noted in the article, like Democrats do this too. But the, the one example that always comes to mind is in, is in 2000, the, the, the yeah, the federal year, the fiscal year 2010, uh, National Defense Authorization Act, when Democrats attached the Matthew Shepard hate crimes bill, like hate crimes bill, to the NDAA. Why they didn't have the ability to pass that on their own? When they, I would, I would hope that they would have had the votes. Maybe they didn't because of all of the like the reactionary Democrats who were part of the House caucus uh, back then. But they had just thrown that into the Defense Authorization Act, and it's a fascinating thing because it's one of the only it the votes then for that for the NDAA that year look very different than they do in other years because you traditionally have at least a few dozen de- uh, democrats from the from the left wing of the house caucus democratic caucus who will reliably vote against the NDA every year and i remember because i was when this was the um was this like the netroots nation like the netroots conference in 2010 i remember nancy watched the video I wasn't there live i remember nancy pelosi almost priding herself in being able to get people like barbara lee to vote for the NDA that year because they're like, we need this to pass to get the, to get the hate crimes bill through. So she was whipping the people who had every single year of their congressional career voted against the NDA to vote for it because of that, because of what they had thrown into that. But getting on to the... So the Republicans, what are they going to be attaching? Yeah, so their attachments won't be at, things that are like at least decent. Um, that like... Pass, that was a good bill for them to have passed, although they should have done it through other means. But with Republicans, it's going to be more so like financial bill, provisions to gut campaign finance reform, to weaken Dodd-Frank, to roll back rules from the EPA, to delist species from the Endangered Species Act, and make various things against, let's say, um, public health, etc. Where you've seen in the past year, years with the continuing resolution I mentioned earlier, from uh, back in September, there was a provision to weaken. Uh, there was a pro- the provision was to prevent the Securities and Exchange Commission from requiring that publicly traded companies disclose their donor disclose sorry, disclose their political contributions, and that was thrown in as a rider into the so. Flint didn't get its funding, but the the ban on like the SEC issuing a campaign like a kind of transparency rule regarding campaign fi- finance. Yeah. Was the, tossed in, the, and it still got all the, it still got almost all the same Democratic votes. Right, the Cromnibus uh, included lots and lots of terrible provisions that I had detailed at the time, you yeah. know, on the radio show and at ArsenalForDemocracy.com. Um, and I, you know, at that point, like this, you know, in December uh, of 2014, I yeah. was just like appalled that the White House was even supporting it because and they got Jamie Dimon and, to lobby you know, House Democrats. Yeah. And, and it was just these were these were like you said, these were like policy changes. These weren't like funding issues. And that yeah. was a funding bill. But the you know, yeah, they had uh, they had like you said, they had the Dodd Frank rollbacks. Mm-hmm. They had um, oh, the one that I don't think you mentioned, but that really, really bothered me at the time. Um, was that they they uh, traded sacred Apache land to a yeah. mining company, which wasn't even a U.S. mining company, no, it wasn't that, that was I the think. NDAA. Yeah, it was all happening around the <laughs> same time, so I don't know. And the other thing that complicates this is that the the um, awful people in Arizona who are trying to trade this federal public land in the Tonto National Forest to uh, the Rio Tinto copper mining uh, outfit from Australia 
they brought this up many, many times over many years. So it is entirely possible that there was a point where it was going to be attached to an NDAA, or, you know, and ended up with the Cromnibus or vice versa. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the, the interior secretary, which God, the interior department's going to be such a huge mess. Like as soon as that rolls over in January, but, um, Sally Jewell, like kind of impotently tweeting out or, or not tweeting out, but, you know, issuing press releases, uh, at the time saying, you know, criticize the last minute addition to it. And this is your, uh, you're right on this one, major defense policy bill. They may have moved it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but that they would hand 2,400 acres of land in Arizona to an Australian mining company. Uh, and, and, you know, like basically was saying that this was not appropriate. And, you know, her job as the interior secretary, mm-hmm. which includes the Bureau of Indian affairs was that she had to protect the, anyway, it's very clear between that, between the situation in North Dakota now, yeah. you know, it's just once again, you know, demonstration that federal abuses against the Native American people are ongoing, mm-hmm. that the Native interests and voices are disregarded, uh, and that they, you know, it's not a distant past relic. It's like happening now, and they have no leverage. Like, they're just not, you know, they're not being heard at all. It's not a priority um, you know, there's some movement mm-hmm. happening on the scene in North Dakota at this point, but even that it's like the company is saying, well, they didn't get the government approval that they wanted. So they're just going to like bite the fine and, you know, yeah. go under the river or whatever. And that like, if you're them, if you're that company, that makes a hundred percent sense because there is no way that by the time that the process of assessing a violation and mm-hmm. levying a fine comes around, that there's going to be anything done about that. I mean, like, the current administration is not that great about dealing with fines on major engineering projects and stuff like that. And they're nothing as bad as the like previous administration, the George W. Bush administration, which is going to be a lot more similar under the Trump ones. Like they're just going to, you know, there's going to be some nominal fine that they will either just refuse to pay. That's what mining companies do. Like if a mine collapses, they get like a whole bunch of fines or even before then they get a whole bunch of fines for like, obvious violations mm-hmm. that are dangerous and then they just don't pay them because yeah. they're like why bother none of you are ever okay. coming to c- collect mm-hmm. it from us and then you know or or in the, this case they will just say well sure we'll pay this nominal fine because it doesn't cost that much yeah, and we're going to make a huge amount of business. money yeah exactly um you know and they always i mean they always like kick up a huge storm when something like that happens but whatever like they just don't you know they've all built it in in all of their investment things like the amount of money that you have to find and actually collect from one of these like you know companies to make them actually like recoil and wish they hadn't done it is just massive because they just make so much money off these deals um and uh, we're going to have to come to the end of the segment in just a few minutes because um, uh, this week, if you're listening on on the air in Delaware, uh, we're being preempted. There's going to be a, a women's basketball game coming up, I believe, um, at uh, 645. Um, if you're listening uh, on the podcast, we're going to continue at ArsenalForDemocracy.com or iTunes or wherever with mm-hmm. um, some additional discussion. Um, but, you know, the, like Jonathan is saying yeah. here, there's 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 you know budget reconciliation which we'll probably talk more about yeah. because that's something that I've talked about on the early days of this show um or my previous radio show before this one um but there's also just these like 
riders that are going to get attached to things to change, you know, these union laws or whatever. And, you know, or these environmental regulations, animal regulations, any of these things. And they're just, the Democrats aren't going to do anything about it. Because Democrats don't like voting against these bills. Like, so in addition from what I was noting before, with the, when Bill is talking about the kind of omnibus bill, the continuing resolution plus omnibus uh, in 2014, in addition to the roll, kind of the rollback of Dodd Frank provisions that I know Elizabeth Warren had been very vocal at the time when she was calling out Citigroup uh, directly on the Senate floor, they also lifted the um, the amount that an individual can donate to a party committee in a year from 32,400 to 324,000. Yeah, I mean, literally 10 times <laughs> 10 larger. Times. And we saw that 324,000 number come up a lot this, this year, year. Yeah, because, because you had that. people do, cutting checks mm-hmm. that much. And it wasn't to a specific committee. Usually it was like cumulatively across yeah. all the different state committees or whatever, but then it would be funneled up through to yeah. the national party. I mean, it was, you know, just such a massive loophole. And I don't think it was productive for anybody. I don't think no. it, I don't think, I think most of that money was probably wasted to be honest. Um, probably you know, the, the, uh, you know, I don't think we have time to go through the whole list and you can, yeah. again, you can check out arsenalfordemocracy.com for the full list. But I, I do want to um, point out the one that is particularly uh, interesting to me besides the provision to block EPA from regulating certain water, water sources, choices. which seems relevant to our earlier <laughs> yeah. conversation, uh, a reduction of nutrition standards mm-hmm. in school lunches and the women, infant and children food aid program in order to benefit potato farmers, which I can only interpret to mean that they declared French fries to be a vegetable. Um, I, think that was, I think that's probably what I, I think I, was. Yeah, that's the only thing oh, no, I can I think, think of, right? It might have been. It might have also had to do with what, like white potatoes, which is like kind of very standards that like white potatoes aren't really great because they're very starchy. And well, if you have if you have white potatoes. if you have white waffle cut fries with ketchup, that's a well balanced meal that benefits the U.S. agricultural uh, industry. Um, and then you also mentioned the other ones like endangered species list. And because these things yeah. will never get as much attention as the yeah, they're not gonna, they're not going to get the attention. Bills, yeah. Like. Even when they pass, like if they pass the House as a standalone, they didn't get very much attention. The Senate, the Senate, the Republicans aren't likely to end the filibuster. They might, but there are a lot of old institutionally conservative senators who might balk at that. But this gives them a way of passing all of that pent up legislation that they have, kind of, of repealing rules, of rolling back labor standards, et cetera, of passing. Missions to got Dad Frank to we like etc. All of the things that they want yeah. their wish list and instead of yeah in the bill that Democrats will vote for because it keeps the government funded and so what or we're going to it see, keeps the military operation exactly it keeps going, the military. they don't want to be accused in attack ads of having voted to not provide for our troops, troops or whatever exactly. which is I mean oh, you, come on like the Republicans sent them there with no body armor right. <laughs> and then we're, years later Democrats are paralyzed with fear about being attacked Attack. over that or whatever oh, you have yeah, like current- to give you know to give an example mm-hmm. here uh you know you're, you're talking about Senate bills that instead of passing by, you know, 51 votes or something, yeah. if you somehow get past the filibuster, we're talking about like 93 to four. Yeah. As the as the type of margin. Exactly. Which was I think that that was the, the 93 to four was with like the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act, which itself is a, a bill that was just kind of a, a giveaway to insurance companies. But they they had attached a provision to roll back deriv- like kind of. Uh, oversight over like derivatives trading, which has nothing to do with terrorism risk insurance. But somebody attached it to a bill. No, no Democrat wanted to look. They're soft on terrorism by voting against terrorism, like, except for 
think Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Maria Cantwell on, from the left had voted against it, and then Marco Rubio, for whatever reason, voted against it. But most people are going to gladly vote for it. And we're seeing that, that last week, we saw it last week, and with this week, with the 21st Century Cures Act, which is a pharmaceutical company, like pharmaceutical industry giveaway that basically neuters the FDA in any type of oversight over, over new drugs. But because if there's like a little bit of money tossed out to, let's say, like kind of mental health and kind of, kind of in research, like in medical research, which would still have to be appropriated. So the money's not even really there. It's like theoretically authorized. I'm saying, but they can take that money away at any, like in yeah. any future bill. We're and that at, would reduce the deficit, so you can throw that <laughs> right, on the reconciliation right. once a year yeah. or once a budget, you know, whatever. But so, yeah. so those might go, but what's definitely going to stay is the we- as the weakening of the FDA. And for like one of the things that you're now going to allow pharmaceutical companies to market their products for things that they have no scientific evidence that those pro- like that the, that those drugs can help. Yeah, yeah, because there's the there's been this rule that uh, they they were saying that if you had like a one of these placebo type homeopathic things that you'd have to put, this is not medicine, like very (laughs) clearly labeled on it. And they're going to try to roll back stuff like that because that's a hugely lucrative industry. And they want people to be like essentially misled on the medicinal value of, you know, these things. Um, So we're going to go to a break uh, for the podcast. You can get the rest of that. Uh, at arsenalfordemocracy.com or on iTunes um, if you are listening on the radio. The radio version is about to go, I think, to a uh, sports game. That's what I've been told anyway. If you are listening on the podcast, you can just keep listening uh, and we'll continue uh, here. So arsenalfordemocracy.com. We'll be back in just a moment. Democracy. You're still listening to Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Still in studio with me is Jonathan Cohn. This is the online-only portion of this because the rest of the aired show had to be preempted for uh, the sports segment. Uh, We've been talking so far this hour about legislative Mm -hmm. maneuverings and shenanigans and that kind of thing at the federal level. You know, riders that will be attached to funding and defense bills and things like that. Um, That's certainly something to keep an eye on. Although, personally, like... Sometimes I always just feel like I'm I'm in this weird twilight zone where like nobody else remembers the first six months of 2001 before 9-11. A lot of people's memory of the George W. Bush administration, day zero is 9-11, and they cannot yeah. remember anything that happened before that. Whereas like for whatever reason, I don't know why, because I was in fourth grade at the time, for whatever reason, I have like a pretty vivid memory <laughs> of the stuff that was happening in the spring that year in at the federal level. Um, I honestly, I, I'm guessing a lot of it was because like Ted Kennedy, who was the you know senator okay. from Massachusetts, was like a prime Democratic sponsor on a lot of this stuff. And there was all this back and forth drama that year with like, you know, first, uh, like, so f- first the new Senate took control in early January okay. and Gore was the tiebreaker because he was still the vice president. And so technically there was Democratic control yeah, for the month of like January. 50-50. And then Dick Cheney got sworn in as vice president partway through January and it flipped to Republican control. And then Harry Reid, who was at the time the like m- uh, minority whip or whatever, uh, went around hunting for Republicans that he could poach to join the Democratic Party or at least flip as independents and caucus with the Democrats. And I've never seen like an official confirmation of what that list was. 
But uh, the ultimate person that they got was Jim Jeffords. That's not a huge surprise. Yeah. Like, that makes some amount of sense. The one that would have really made complete sense, especially based on his voting record subsequent to that, actually, was Lincoln Chafee, who yeah. did end up b- later becoming a Democrat after being the governor of Rhode Island. Um, the really absurd one was uh, John McCain. <laughs> like, so Harry Reid was, was theoretically, allegedly you know, according to dubious sources or whatever, was trying to get John McCain to flip and caucus oh, with the Democrats 50, as an independent. Senate. They would have all been trying to get Susan Collins, wouldn't they, right now? Uh, I'm not and sure. Like, in that type of... Yeah, I think Susan Collins may have also been on that list at the time. Yeah. But Susan Collins is like a pretty loyal Republican. Yeah, People forget always, that. Yeah, they always like, like to... yeah, she does not have that moderate of a voting record. No, she like doesn't. she's very with the leadership. This is slightly off topic, but one of my favorite examples of calling out Susan Collins stems from this was in um what after what election was this was this after the 2012 election so this was early 2013 i believe when diane sawyer had a video on abc with the women of the senate because it was like a record number of women in the senate and they're at one point talking about how like oh well if, if, if women were to dominate the senate we wouldn't be having all these like debates about reproductive rights and like susan collins makes some comment about about the about this and like warren just like goes like, elizabeth warren not directly attacking Susan Collins, but pretty clearly attacking Susan Collins, noting like, oh no, this isn't settled because people like like Susan Collins, whom she does not actually directly note, had a po- kind of had didn't agree with like the a provision in the Affordable Care Act that kind of that or what was it? It was the Republicans had wanted to allow employers to be able to have a say over birth control of their employees and health care plans, so that rather than creating it as a right, treating it as something subject to like subjected to the will of an employer. And like Warren's like Warren's eyes just like lit up when Susan Collins was like, Oh, I'm so great on this issue, it's a non issue here anymore. So I, I, I always remember that. Yeah. No. And if anyone wants more, I won't get into it. But there is uh, there is an article on arsenalfordemocracy.com that I wrote in October 2014 responding to a BuzzFeed article. The BuzzFeed article was national Democrats haven't spent anything on Maine's Senate race. My article, which you can look up, is the Susan Collins dilemma in which I explain that you like at minimum, regardless of her voting record on issues, uh, the more important vote is always going to be who she votes for for leader, exactly. and that's true in any of these things, right? So yeah, which is why yeah. which is why it's a for, the it's most important malpractice yeah. for groups like the League, like the League of Conservation Voters. Or they always the, look the for one for one Republican to like get bipartisan donor base yeah. and stuff like that. But like, it's so bad because the only vote that really ultimately matters in this level of polarized environment is who you vote for as leader. I mean, you know, there used to be a time when you had liberals in both the Democratic and Republican parties. You had conservatives in both the Democratic and, you know, Republican parties. But the the like bizarre kind of feature was that although you had all these conservatives dominating committee positions, the actual like national chamber leadership of both parties tended to be very liberal for a period. And that is like very long Long gone. gone. Yeah. Right. And if you have these like mainstream, like, you know, Mitch McConnell is a pretty hard line conservative. Mm-hmm. He's not necessarily like as brash about it as some of these younger ones are, but like he's basically died in the wool, like a heritage foundation yeah. type person. And I think his wife is like a senior heritage foundation person. She's about to become yeah. the uh, transportation she, I secretary. I, forget I think she's heritage. heritage. Um, you know, who, and, 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 and like Jim DeMint, who is now, literally at the heritage foundation yeah. was the whip for a while under under mcconnell 
They're um, basically the Republican Party's equivalent of CAP, although actually CAP grew up as a, as an equi- as like a counterpart. To right. Um, but you know, anyway, that's that's off topic though, and like even the 2001 stuff is a little <laughs> off topic. But like you had the the huge tax cuts but that got still put love, through. Love listening to us online audience. Yeah, you had these, <laughs> you had these huge tax cuts that went through, and you had the No Child Left Behind mm-hmm. that went through. And all these other things, but those were the two, like, really big ones. And they ended up with these, like, gigantic majorities of, like, you know, 80 senators and stuff like that or whatever. I mean, there's some complexity involved in the Bush tax cuts. Um, and that one, I think, was I should clarify that, that one. That was not a, yeah. CLB was huge. Yeah, the there the Bush tax cuts are more complicated. They involve reconciliation. That was a much closer vote, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but the yeah, no child left behind was not a rider. I don't think. No, like no, it was it, just it, it was its, its own Senate, thing. Yeah, and like almost all Democrats voted for it. Yeah, so like we have to be careful about assuming that everything is just going to get put through on like these stealthy riders or but like you it, know slam dunk through vigilant reconciliation. For those, yep, because vigilance. They yeah that's the one thing where the writer like this may not happen but i I just read an article about republicans considering throwing in the waiver to allow trump so like trump's uh likely defense secretary mad dog mattis yeah can't legally be defense secretary because of a provision that means that like if you if you were kind of a military general like a certain like that you have to have a certain period after your retirement before you could serve as a defense secretary, just as a way of kind of ensuring civilian control over the military. And he doesn't have that large of a window. So Congress will have to pass a waiver. And Republicans were, I heard that they might ultimately not, but they were considering tossing that waiver to allow him to be able to serve into the NDAA. So you just throw it in there knowing that all of the Democrats are still going to vote for it. And so it means that you can just bypass that entire debate. Yeah. Because that's the one thing that with the problem with using kind of omnibus bills or ND, or defense authorization instead of as the vehicle for passing things is that it destroys the debate around them. There, there's, there are ample examples of Congress still passing horrible legislation by large majorities, but at least there's, one can hope that there was, they're required in theory at least to have debate before it. The other thing that I wanted to talk about, uh, and I was also going to note for folks that the we were going to have Rachel on the show this week, and she was all prepared for that, but then uh, she had a, a personal emergency that came up, uh, and she let me know while we were recording just now, um, so she wasn't able to join us, which is why it's just the two okay. of us. Um, but uh, the other thing is, I wanted to talk a little bit about the um, briefly uh, about the state legislature's yeah. situation. Um, this is something that, again, I feel like I'm locked in this awful time loop, uh, to, I'm like, you know, like how many things have we referenced on this episode alone that date to like the fall or winter of, of 2014, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same stuff over and over again. And, uh, loyal listeners will recall that, uh, my dear friend and former co-host Sasha, um, she wrote uh, an article uh, at arsenalfordemocracy.com about how, you know, we were sort of missing that there was this second layer to mm-hmm. the story of the 2014 debacle, which was that it was not just bad at the federal level. Yeah. It was also very bad at the level of state legislatures and attorney generals and that sort of thing. Now, Democrats actually, like, apparently did okay on improving a little bit on chamber control this year, I think. Um, but they still lost a huge number of seats. Well, they, I think they, I think there, I think Nevada. there was, I think there was like one or two chambers in various states that may have flipped. 
Um, but the the, the overall number of legislators, uh, they really they, lost, like, they the, sloughed off a whole. Yeah, bunch. they lost a lot overall, but they definitely because um, Nevada flipped in the Democratic Democrats' favor. Um, Kentucky flipped against them. Yeah, I think and it was then, a net change of one. So I think there must have been one other, but it, I don't think it. I don't think it flipped remember? overall state control. I think it just flipped yeah. one one specific chamber. Connecticut's now like a tie-breaking vote with the lieutenant governor. Oh, good. Oh, good. Because that makes sense in a New England state that should be like overwhelmingly <laughs> democratic. Right? That, great job, everyone. Right. You really did not drop the ball at all. Anyway, and, uh, so yeah. So walk walk me through what you found in the article. Uh, that you wanted to really highlight. Yeah, because I, so with that, I just So again, to... this is the, the 2016 version of this, which yeah. Jonathan wrote, as opposed yeah. to the 2014 one so from Sasha. So the main point I was making with the, that is how a lot of the, that there are a lot of post-mortem discussions about what went wrong with the presidential race. And there are many different things. It's kind of almost, you could talk about a perfect storm of different errors, both small and large. That if you changed any single one, you would have been able to flip the like, flip or turn out additionally uh probably more so the latter uh like kind of turn out that additional like not even a hundred thousand votes and you would have been able to flip the electoral college and if it were just maybe two hundred thousand votes to top on that so like the amounts needed to fill up pennsylvania michigan and wisconsin if you raise it a little bit you would have flipped the senate seats seats in pennsylvania and wisconsin you would have the senate too but not that amount of those votes still couldn't have changed what was happening down ballot where Democrats still saw that kind of continued a long process of hemorrhaging of seats and as well as with gubernatorial races as well. Because the, yeah, the chart from the National Conference of State Legislatures, mm-hmm. which is the nonpartisan service that just compiles a lot of like data and statistics on state legislatures, um, they uh, basically said that the Republican seat control as a percentage of all like, mm-hmm. you know, 4,000 whatever seats, I think it's 4,000 Let's see. No, it's it's double that, right? So it's 4,170 Republican seats now, 3,129 Democratic seats now. Um, and uh, you have basically around 55% of all seats are controlled yeah. by the Republicans, which was the number that Democrats had in 2009, mm-hmm. right? And that's just like a miserable catastrophe yeah. um, for the Democrats. And, and yeah, focusing on like, like, I mean, we've been guilty of it, too, even this hour of, like, talking about what little changes could have, like, potentially flipped the yeah. presidential or Senate outcomes uh, at the federal level. But, like, I mean, you know, I, I get frustrated if people are, and I think I've said this before on the air, but, you know, if people are talking about the Comey letter regarding the FBI investigation, like, sorry, but that didn't really, like, cause Democratic control of legislatures to flip from like 55% down to like almost 40%, yeah. you know, from 2009 to 2017. And you can say, well, this is backlash against Obama, et cetera, et cetera. But like, look, I mean, the Republicans spent decades preparing for the takeover of the judicial branch. They yeah. spent decades chipping away at the Democratic majorities in the U.S. House so that they could take over in the 90s. And I can only assume that they just finally got around to coming up with this, like, super long-term master plan. And, like, you know, there's some debate as to whether or not, like, the gerrymandering aspect, especially, you know, at the federal level is, like, overstated in terms of its impact i am in the camp that says no it's it's pretty significant you know that that like democrats won something like 55 percent of all house votes cast in um north carolina and then you know only won four seats yeah 
that clearly speaks to a gerrymandering issue. And, um, but you know, go down the ballot a little bit further, North Carolina, my understanding is they will, they are literally being court ordered to yes. hold new legislative new elections, elections in 2017 because the districts were so unfairly drawn. Yeah. And with, with, there's, a, there's a court case in Wisconsin as well that will that if if it the state supreme court had ruled in the democratic the state democratic party's favor and it's probably going to might go up to the supreme court um but it had ruled their state legislative seats to be unfairly gerrymandered so that that clearly was so a yeah and but it just speaks to how badly democrats did in 2010 right right it, right it, a lot of this does really fundamentally go back to the situation in 2010 and we can't overlook that and i think we did overlook that as a party um but yeah, it's just, I mean, like we're going to have to win in some very difficult places in 2018 and 2020 in order to to not have this debacle happen. Or I guess in many states that have referendum systems, people are going to yeah. have to somehow get through a like nonpartisan, you know, anti-gerrymandering well, would... system adopted by the, you know, by that. And, and like I know, you know, a lot of people have mixed feelings on that and I have mixed feelings on it as well, but like I'm starting to come around to it just because like it is very fundamentally unfair mm -hmm. like how a lot of these districts are drawn in so many states and it's not just a question of unfair to the Democrats, it's like what is going on? This is not like a coherent way of doing yeah, things. Like your districts, they're not compact in any way. It's something that yeah. it's it's a, it's a disservice to anybody in the district. Because, like, for example, I'll, like, a good example of this, that they're thinking of um, from Philadelphia area myself, Pennsylvania's 7th District is a horribly drawn district that I think I once described as a woman with a weird hat playing piano or cleaning a floor. Is this the one that now covers most of the arc over Delaware? Yes. Because that'll be relevant to some listeners, although we're not on the yes, air right it, it's, now. It's, but yeah, the, it used uh, to be. Yeah, it it's used to Delaware be, County. Yeah. It was. It was formerly Joe Sestak. It was. Yeah. It used it, to be a Delaware County district, and it was very was small. Sestak. Yeah, it was very compact. And it now was, it's it like it goes. Like, it sweeps over the whole arc yeah. of the twelve-mile circle. You know, in yeah. northern so Delaware. So it goes. Yeah. So it used to be a compact district that was basically just Del a solid chunk of Delaware County. It was coherent. So that it was represented by Joe Sestak when he was in the House. And you had a logical, compact district. And that's useful just as a constituent when, and, and, for, and, and for whoever represents them to have a territory that, that is contiguous, that is kind of, that it, that it makes logical sense because the various parts of it do cohere. Right. Um, I mean, whereas yeah. now it takes you from like the border of Philadelphia out to Lancaster and it's chopped up in any which way. So like you and the person to block over from you might not even be in the same district. Yeah. And that's bad in terms of being able to organize on a community level or even to have any say like, people just like, communicate with your representative. Fundamentally bad for representation. Yeah, and, you know, I'm sure that if uh, if uh, if Rachel were on with us right now, like she's from Idaho, she could probably give the the, you know, sort of parallel example on a different issue, which is uh, that part of the state is in one time zone and part of the state is in another time zone because part of the state economically coheres with the neighboring state's time zone and the oh, other okay. state doesn't. I mean, the other part of the state doesn't. We accept that some states are going to split by time zone. Certainly Florida does that because it's a question of where are your yeah. interests like most closely aligned and like states are drawn weirdly. There's a lot of history yeah. behind how states get put together and where settlements happen within those states. If you're talking within a state and you're drawing these absurd districts all over the place that in some cases before they rolled it back in Florida, you had situations where the districts 
literally did not have any connective tissue yeah, you'd like have to you'd have to drive through someone else's district or you'd have to fly there or whatever yeah. like they were just Green including Brown's pockets and it's like what do these areas have to do with each other they have nothing to do with each other and that's not good for representation it doesn't matter party wise one way or the other yeah. those people are not being represented because they are being put in these districts with people that they have absolutely nothing in common with and may live you know 25 yeah. miles away from like or more and, 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 and that will also like it, it will make a representative have to do more work if you have to go to visit the various parts of your district so like if you can just have a, a coherent area that kind of has kind of a coherent economically etc um it makes the district more represent like it can make it more representative and then can make whoever gets elected more representative of the district. Yeah. And and here in Massachusetts, um, you know, they do a lot of stuff at the state democratic party level by congressional district. Some of it's by Senate district, yeah. which is its own issue, but those tend to be they're relatively small because there's a lot of Senate districts. Um but like when they were selecting delegates to the DNC, for example, yeah. those were by congressional district. And I attended uh, as an uh, observer, um, I attended part of the caucus for the third uh, district for or no, oh, no, no the, I went okay, to the third okay, one. Okay. Yeah, I'm in the fourth, but yeah. I went to the third one. And that's the one that is Congressman. Uh, what? Songus. Yes. Yeah, Congresswoman Songus represents that. And um, she is from Lowell. Yeah. Um, this is the district that her husband used to represent, which was, I think, probably a much more compact and coherent district back when he had it. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know the whole evolution of that district, um, but he uh, but Congresswoman Songus represents an area that includes. Um, you know, certain parts of the very northeastern corner of Massachusetts, a whole bunch of areas around Lowell along the New Hampshire border. Um, Lowell is pretty close to the New Hampshire border for people who don't live here. Um, and then it just kind of like goes along the top and then suddenly starts dropping down and includes like, you know, places like Marlboro and all these areas along like 495 and everything. And like at least at minimum, it's great that there is at least this highway, I guess, that connects a lot of these towns in this big arc what do some of these towns in the middle along yeah. 495 have in common with lowell other than that they are on 495 you yeah. know and i think there's i think like concord is in that district as well if i remember correctly and you know like concord doesn't have a lot in common with some of these other towns and they don't have a lot in common with concord and you know yeah. um some of the districts you know probably make a lot more sense like i think there's uh but now that they had re lost a district in the last yeah. uh, redistricting um, there's a district, I think, for almost all of Western Massachusetts. Yeah, that, like, that makes sense, because yeah, a lot of those people, yeah, a lot of those people have, like, similar economic yeah. uh, issues, challenges, opportunities, that sort of thing. And, you know, now they're being, like, you know, say what you want about Neil, but at least now they're being represented by one person, person. you know, that's representing this whole area. Um, and I think there's like a district that's mostly like the Cape, like that's good. Cause those people have their own issues and you know, stuff that's very yeah. unique. That's not shared with the rest of Massachusetts. Yeah. Like it makes sense to do it this way. Um, you know, and, and even I think like Catherine Clark's district, if I remember correctly, it's like basically this long, narrow string of like Metro West communities, yeah. Uh, from the part that's like definitely Metro West in much closer to like inside, you know, 128 and that sort of thing. Um, I can see how there's like a relative continuity within that yeah. district of like the towns that, you know, have interests together and similar 
traffic struggles and things like that. Yeah. yeah. The Boston-based ones are somewhat strange. Part of that, like, of, of my Capuano and Stephen Lynch, just in the way that Stephen Lynch just seems like weirdly encircle uh, Mike Capuano's district so that it's part of that has to do with the desire to create make Massachusetts seventh a district that could elect a kind of a, a kind of a, a person of color because it's designed to be that I think that's at least part of the reason and that's that's a laudable goal you do want that that's one thing that will lead to dish to like kind of playing around with the boundaries of districts it shouldn't lead to what you'll see in states states like north carolina where they just pack every single voter into one district where you get like 90 percent of within the yeah what is it they found and they found every single black person in the state State, and put them in one district district. and like just drew like a very narrow line across the state yeah so like that's bad but like you do need districts that can like you do need to be able to draw districts so you can elect diverse diverse representation but you also need them to be kind of coherent of the of the communities and relatively compact so that like yeah so it's some of the complex things will require various determinations and a lot of states just don't seem to do a very good job of it yeah um but you know district drawings aside like we just need to keep an eye on the fact and we just don't seem to be that you know republicans improved the number of governorships they have Um, I think they maintained about the same number of attorney generalships they have, and they've been really leveraging those like for federal lawsuits on environmental issues, things like that. And what they're going to do as soon as Trump takes office is anything that he and the Congress don't roll back immediately, they will file suits rapidly yeah. to like draw attention to the fact that they need to be rolled yeah. back in, in their view. Um, and, you know, and then we have this, you know, the legislative decline that we saw. Mm-hmm. And like, this is just very troubling because... You know, there's that's where people really get hurt, right? Yeah. I mean, like Wisconsin ended up flipping this year. That should have been seen a long time ago. A lot of that involved the newly Republican majorities in the legislatures yeah. that were elected in 2010, along with Scott Walker, um, basically just ramming through this, you know, anti-union agenda, mm-hmm. later an anti-abortion agenda, like all these different things. They were pushing these through in Wisconsin. And then we saw the consequences of that, which is not just political consequences. Like people's lives were very severely impacted by this. And the same thing, of course, with Michigan. Like if it were not for Rick Snyder getting elected and the loss of Democratic control to some extent in the uh, chambers back and forth in in Michigan, I don't think we'd have a Flint situation. Like obviously there were some errors earlier that led to like various emergency manager laws being put in place in the first place, but those were significantly amended for an even more hardline agenda, which ended up being enacted at the cost of people's lives. And you have in both cases, a clear example of the relationship of how, uh, of how when losing control of a governorship or in the legislature can create policy. That's not only bad from a, from the perspective of like, negative impact on people's lives it also damages the democratic chances later on because that's what happens with with right to work laws being passed in those states and also in terms of wisconsin's their kind of various voter suppression laws so once you lose on that time one thing that republicans will do whenever they take control is that they will figure out what they need to do to make it more easier for them to keep control yeah and so that means making it more difficult for democratic constituencies to vote or more difficult for democratic constituencies to turn out their people to vote and it'll also mean a weakening campaign finance protections 
Whereas Democrats are less likely to do the alternative when they're in power, which should be make it as easy to vote as possible, which the things such as automatic registration or same-day registration, bolstering the strength of unions for whatever legislative action you can take to make that happen, and having very strict laws on campaign finance and kind of controlling how much outside money can be, flo can be flooded, how much dark money can be f come in flooding into your elections as well as taking on the economic interests that fund the other side. So that, like, taking, figure out what, like, the, whatever industries in your state are the biggest funders of the Republican Party and actually try to meaningfully, like, weaken their economic power um, while strengthening the economic power on, on your own side. Because that's why one sees, like, when a Republican, Republicans like taking on, doing things that will economically harm union members, particularly teachers' unions, Professor, professors can often hit both the union angle as well as the fact that college professors do donate a lot of money to the Democratic Party, as do university administrators. Um, and you have trial lawyers, who that's one of the reasons why Republicans like like have like tort reform type stuff. They they want to do if you can kind of pass laws that make it more, more difficult to sue companies because it both helps in which the companies that donate to the Republican Party and helps take take money away from the trial lawyers that, Demo that donate to the Democratic Party. Uh, you can read more uh, in Jonathan's uh, piece and his other articles uh, all at arsenalfordemocracy.com. Uh, we were going to have Rachel on this week, um, and she was all prepared to go for this uh, this topic, but she uh, did have a personal emergency. Uh, you can follow Jonathan uh, on Twitter at Jonathan Cohn. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me again. Thank you for having me on. That's all the time we have this week. Tweet us your comments at AFD Radio or email AFDRadio at gmail.com. The show is available for download from arsenalfordemocracy.com on Wednesdays. You can also hear it on the air in Delaware from 91.3 FM WVUD, WVUD HD1, and WVUD HD2 Newark every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern. You can get additional commentary at arsenalfordemocracy.com daily, as well as links to articles discussed today. From my studio in Newton, Massachusetts, I'm Bill Humphrey, and I approve this message. Good night. Thank you.